Welcome to the Faith Forward podcast series. Faith Forward is a grassroots network dedicated to bringing together leaders of ministry with children, youth, and families for collaboration, resourcing, and inspiration toward innovative theology and practice. Through this series, we'll learn from creative, forward-thinking leaders who are pushing the boundaries and reimagining what it means to follow Jesus' way of love and justice today. Join us as we instigate a revolution of hope in our world. Welcome to the Faith Forward Podcast. I'm Dave Sinis, and I'm very glad that you're listening today. This is a, a special episode because today I'm joined by the one and only Brian McLaren. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brian surely needs no introduction, but I'll, I'll give him one anyway. Uh, he's an author and a speaker and an activist whose work is known around the world. Uh, and his landmark books include A New Kind of Christian, We Make the Road by Walking, and The Great Spiritual Migration. And he's also the co-author of a children's book, Corey and the Seventh Story. Uh, Brian, I'm just so delighted that you're here today. Well, listen, I am happy to be with the one and only Dave Sinis. <laughs> so uh, I'm really happy about that. Great to be with you. Awesome. Um, most people don't actually know that uh, the whole idea behind Faith Forward started when you and I were having lunch together one day about 10 years ago. Um, and as, as I remember, we both felt the need for some sort of space to bring together um, the most creative minds in ministry with children and youth, and alongside them, bring together the most innovative leaders and in progressive, uh, thoughtful movements in ministry and the church in general, and just kind of put them in the same room and see what happens. And, and of course, we did that in 2012 and four more times since then. So it's been about a decade since we had that conversation. Um, so I'm wondering what you've noticed about how ministry with youth and children has changed in the past 10 years. Mm. You know, uh, Dave, I, I'll be honest. I don't, I, I feel like probably your listeners have way more that they could say about that than I do. Uh, and the reason I say that is I get out, I do a lot of speaking. I'm in, you know, a lot of churches across denominations, but I'm usually the guy preaching. So I don't get to go back and see what's happening behind the scenes with the kids. Um, and and there, to me, it's that level of grassroots sort of granularity that really, uh, really becomes important. But the thing I can tell you, you, you remember uh, over 10 years ago when you would hear me complain about this. And what I feel has really happened is that you and uh, others in Faith Forward and other people have begun to find each other and share notes. And, and now more and more people are aware that there, is, that there are new possibilities brewing on the horizon. I, I have to say, though, I, just in the last two weeks, I was on a phone call with some folks, and they were lamenting hmm. that their church is still using the same old curriculum. And what they're doing with adults has moved beyond some of those traditional categories and they still haven't found better curricula and so on. So I think, I think we're making progress, but we still have a long way to go. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, I mean, that's almost word for word the kind of things we were saying 10 years ago that started this whole thing and you yeah. and I and, and others who, who 
spearheaded Faith Forward in its in its early days, you know, it was exactly those stories of people who have moved beyond the the kind of harmful or simplistic notions of Christianity and didn't know how to bring the how to bring their children and teens along and, and really didn't have the didn't know where to turn for resources. And I, you know, since then I think there have been a lot of resources that have popped up. But I think what you're making me wonder is how many new people along that way have would not have been part of this conversation 10 years ago and have since made that switch to, you know, new kinds of Christianity. Yes. Yet um, are still asking that same question that, that uh, you heard so, so much 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, another thing I noticed that's happening is a lot of young adults are leaving evangelicalism because they do not want their kids exposed to the kind of theology that they were exposed to and that they know they would still be exposed to. I meet some Catholic parents who are doing uh, something similar. And, um, and what happens is some of them try to move into mainline Protestant churches. And the sad thing there is in many, many mainline Protestant churches, the congregations are, have crossed the threshold where they don't have small children there anymore. And so their choices are churches with, with children and bad theology <laughs> and churches with better theology and no children. And I still, I think that we have a number of tipping points to cross to where we get to a better place where two things happen. The, the churches that still do have significant numbers of children become more intentional and focused and internally aligned, meaning that what they do with kids, what they do adults with adults, you know, has a similar kind of missional theological shape yeah. and then aligned with one another so that, it might be this forward-leaning Lutheran church and this forward-leaning United Church of Canada and this forward-leaning Episcopal church and this forward-leaning Mennonite church, that they understand they're all doing something remarkably similar, you know, and that they're in the same work together. One other thing that I think needs to happen is I think there are a number of these churches that now have older folks, you know, who, who's, and they don't have significant Sunday school I think some of them could actually be the pioneers mm-hmm. to say, we're going to do traditional, you know, our church service, you know, from nine to 10, but every week at 1030, starting in six months, we're going to put together a great children's program and we're going to recruit families who, who want a new kind of Christian education for their, their children. Uh, and I think that could actually happen. I, I don't have yeah. great examples of it yet, but I think it could happen. And I think partly because I think a lot of these folks are ready for something like that. And they don't want to just keep, uh, as one Lutheran pastor said it to me, they don't want to keep micromanaging their own decline. Yeah. I've noticed something like that similar thing happening um, in, in my work and my travels as well as I do. I'm getting a lot of questions and a lot of uh, comments from those mainline churches who at the same time, don't have any, many, if any, children and youth left to work with, but at the same time, are, they're really interested in the kind of what's on the horizon for children and youth ministry. Not, I think there's still some that have that idea of the young people are going to come in and save this congregation, but I think more and more there are people who are advocating for um, 
the real change that has to happen because you can't just, you know, as you know, you can't just bring a bunch of young people into, into a, a church culture and say, well, you become like us so that you carry yeah. the torch. Yeah. It's, yeah. You're just going to walk out. You have to give them the ability to change things. And I think more and more people are recognizing that if it's between the choices between dying completely or dying to the old so something new can come, yeah. more and more people are picking the second one. So let me give you, uh, can, can I tell you a story of something really interesting that just happened today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Protestant, but uh, my mother-in-law said that I had the good sense if I couldn't be Catholic to marry a Catholic. And, and so today I was uh, on a phone call with an organization called the Economy of Francesco. And this is a Catholic organization, Catholic-sponsored organization. Uh, that's working with something called the Focolare movement. Some folks in the Catholic Church would have heard about. And um, when Pope Francis sent out the document Laudato Si, which was really a letter to every person in the world, inviting every human being to hear the cries of the earth and the cries of the poor, yeah. I think you, and I think you agree, this is one of the most important religious documents in human history. I think it's, I think it's at least as significant as the 95 Theses, right? Absolutely. Uh, so what happened is a group of people got together and said, if we're going to, to save, hear the cries of the earth and the cries of the poor, we need a new economy. And so Pope Francis has sent out word to young people around the world that he's invited them to Assisi later this year to get together to envision a new economy for their world, to say that traditional cap capitalism and traditional communism are old industrial era economic systems. And he's challenging people based on Catholic social teaching and deep Christian ethics to challenge the assumptions of traditional economics and to think about uh, a new economic system. What, what's so interesting is he didn't say, let's bring together all the economics professors from Catholic universities around the world. Right. He said, let's bring together children and young people. And I, I understand that he was inspired in this by Greta Thunberg mm -hmm. and by what's called the Sunrise Movement, which is a youth-oriented movement about the environment. I, I got to tell you, just it was just coincidental that I was on that call today. After, but as soon as I got off, I thought, I can't wait to talk to Dave about this. Because here is the Pope saying the kind of movement we need is a children-led, a children and youth-led movement. Yeah. So it made me wonder. Like, I'm just think you know, I'm just dreaming with you, but this is maybe something we can offer people to think about. Let's imagine we've got a church of 50 or 100 uh, older people, and they have their service every week, you know, let's say from 9 to 10 or whatever. Let's say that out of this Catholic movement come, that, that we could develop, or someone could develop, an eight-week program for kids and youth. Mm -hmm. That was a, a, an eight-week program imagining a better economy. And then let's imagine that someone developed an eight-week program uh, for kids and youth, uh, you know, doing our part to save the planet, to save our planet, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so now we've got 16 weeks. And then let's say we could do an eight-week movement on uh, how to be a peacemaker at your school, an eight-week curriculum, right? You could build a set of curricula and those, you know, 60 something, 70 somethings, 80 something adults could 
do advertising, they could reach out to schools, they could reach out to the public. And they're not recruiting people to join their church, they're right. recruiting people to get training to save the world. What a concept. Right. Right. Uh, they're recruiting for a movement. For a movement, exactly. Yeah. And, and it would be skills oriented and training oriented and, and uh, action oriented. You know, maybe mm -hmm. uh, the, the first eight weeks, uh, you know, that leads up to the kids uh, holding a, uh, having a, a public, uh, uh, you know, press conference is the word I'm looking for, where yeah. they talk about what the kind of businesses that we need in our community and the new ways of thinking about the economy. And maybe then the, the eight weeks on the environment leads to an environmental march or something like that, right? But yeah. like a congregation could do that and they could make a significant difference. That sort of thing could catch on. So that's the kind of thing that I think, you know, there are creative ideas like that out there that are within reach. And it wouldn't take too many to become, to try it, learn from it. Others could try it, learn from it. And pretty soon, yeah. Happen. Yeah, yeah, but it's this shift of we need to get young people in our church to the young people saying we need to get the church into our movement. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Unfortunately, you know, we we're still living in this colonialistic sense of church growth, where yes. what matters is building up the institution, even at the sake of the movement at times. Yes. Yeah. And. Um, uh, the way I heard one young person say it to me is they said, oh, yeah, the church wants millennials. They want yeah. us as fuel. <laughs> and she says, I don't want to be anybody's fuel. But it's yeah. very, very different. You know, the irony is I'm actually for church growth, but not church growth for institutional fuel. Right. For churches growing because the movement we need to, to bring change to our world is so great. If churches would become part of that movement, it would be a whole new ballgame, you know. Absolutely. Um, and what interests me is that with the Sunrise Movement, with, with all the amazing influence, you know, that Greta Thunberg and uh, other young adults have had, and then, uh, and then this thing that, um, that uh, Pope Francis is, uh, is fomenting right now, uh, this, to me, there's something significant going on here. You know, if, yeah. and I don't, I know that people almost, you know, they almost, commodify Greta Thunberg and the thing one of the things I like most about her is that she resists that and remains a human being mm. um, but uh, you know if 500 years from now when people tell the story that I can't remember if she was 13 or 14 when she first started I think she was 13 mm -hmm. that a 13 year old girl would launch a movement that affects it she's already affected the governments of europe right and and none of us know how far that's going to spread people would almost think of that as like a fairy tale or a miracle you know yeah. and here it's happened in front of our eyes yeah and it makes me think of just what um a revolution our mindset in the church can, needs to continue to take yes. because I mean, I've often heard you talk about how you're you're glad that um, your notoriety and your influence didn't start when you were younger, um, because along with all of that came criticism, yeah, and very loud criticism, and and we can see criticism being lobbed at people like Greta Thunberg, yes, and the Sunrise Movement, and you know, 
all sorts of those youth movements is, you know, get back to school and you don't know what you're doing. And, you know, even, even not active criticism, just the naivety, uh, people talking about how naive they are and they're just yes. rose colored glasses and things like yes. that. So I think that there's a tremendous opportunity for the church to change its view from one of having to give these young people this vision of a more just faithful world yes. and instead support them when they need it because yes. they are going to be up against bigger criticism and, and different criticism um, and, and bigger roadblocks than adults who would be doing the same work. Yet, yes. because I think, you know, you can tell the, the power of a movement by the roadblocks people put in place as well. Yes. So the fact that the roadblocks are bigger and the criticism is bigger, it means people know the potential for yes. real change is more tremendous than, uh, than if it was adults leading it. Yes. What's the old saying? First they ignore you, then they mock you, then they fight you, then you win. You know, you see that pattern happen again and again. Um, uh, but what we really need is when young people, when anybody stands up to offer leadership and then the attacks come, that's the opportunity for all the people who are observing, who are sympathetic to this new thing that's trying to be born. They've got to have the back of the people who are out there in front. And they got to then put their uh, reputation on the line to say, and, and this can be done without rancor. This can be done without malice. It can just be said, well, I, for one, think she, make, I think she makes a lot of sense and I'm, I'm with her. You know, a, a statement like that isn't, it, it's not a fight. Mm -hmm. It's not an argument. It's a testimony in some ways. And I think that's a huge part of what, what we need. I mean, it's an interesting way to think about this 33 year old guy who becomes a martyr in a movement in the first century that, that what it just meant for people to do is to say, I actually stand with him. I actually think he was right. And especially in the, the growing polarization, like our climate of polarization, saying who we're with rather than who yes. we're against says a lot uh, yes. about who, the kind of people we want to be and uh, the kind of um, culture and society and, com and global community we want to, to work to create. Well said. Um, one of the things that, one of the gifts you've always given Faith Forward um, each time you're with us is this kind of 20,000 foot view about the state of the church and, and the wider world we live in. Um, we've touched on things that I'm sure are, are part of that vision and that view. Uh, what else do you see as the, the most important um, the most important considerations, the most important uh, movements and ideas that, that are, are shaping us right now and that we have the potential to do some good about? The, the thing I'm saying every chance I get lately, well, let me say uh, uh, maybe two things. The first thing I'd say is that the house really is on fire. You know, we, we, have, we are hurtling toward an environmental catastrophe. The word crisis isn't even a big enough word anymore. And I know a whole lot of people just don't care about the environment. They don't understand that the Amazon basin is their left lung and the center of the Pacific Ocean is their right lung. Right. And that every time they breathe, they're depending on the rainforests and the oceans doing their job of generating oxygen. You know, they, I mean, the short-sightedness of people to think that this is an issue they don't need to care about 
No, this is their body and this is their children and grandchildren's bodies that we're talking about in survival. But the thing people don't realize is that environmental crisis inevitably will lead to catastrophic economic crisis that will inevitably lead to political crises and even violence and war mm-hmm. of a scale that it sounds like some sort of a you know, dystopian uh, science fiction movie if you think about it very much. So we're facing this uh, huge crisis. And I think what, you know, like I have to fight to not just get furious about this, but in church after church, Sunday after Sunday, business as usual goes on as if that isn't happening. And the people feel good at the end of the day because they've defined their job as getting through another Sunday. So I would say the main thing that's going on in the church is absolute stunning denial. In unforgivable, absolutely unacceptable, but completely expectable complacency and denial. It's not just complacency, it's active denial. Um, It's just that we've defined, we've set the bar so low. The bar is to get through the liturgy for another week. The bar is to get through and have people say, nice sermon pastor for another week. And so I'd say that's the main thing that's going on, which is, which is not good. Um, the other th- way that I've been saying this in a lot of places is, I, you know, if we were to take all of our denominations and think of them as a silo, so here's, you know, United Church of Canada, and here's Anglican Church of Canada, and here's Presbyterian Church, and here's, you know, United Methodists, and here's Roman Catholics. If we were to put up all those silos. Yeah. Um, I think what's really happening is those each of those silos has four different streams to it. One stream I call the nostalgic stream. Uh, and then that, that's the stream where people just keep wishing they're going to wake up in the 1950s or the 1980s or something and that things will go back. And they're, they're the ones that, uh, that maybe they just want things to stay the same, right? Uh, and, and go back to the way they used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, at the opposite end, you have what I would call the creative churches. They're the ones that are saying the future is going to be different from the past. Let's get out there and let's, let's go. And they don't want to be in denial. They want to move forward. They want every single element of every single liturgy to contribute to the work of this uh, urgent time. Uh, they don't want to waste a Sunday. Not only that, they don't want to waste a song or a prayer or a sermon or a reading. They want everything to contribute, uh, a, a class, a, a study group. They want everything to contribute. Mm-hmm. And then in between are the two sort of middle uh, lanes. And one of the lower one I call the walking on eggshells um, stream. And this is the folks who are aware that there are these different streams, but they're aware that uh, their their congregation is so divided that if they even mention this, that um, they might split. Right. They can't afford to offend their nostalgic people because they give most of the money. Right. And they they can, but and and they're and so they just try to avoid everything. Uh, that's a significant percentage. And then the next layer up is what I would call the holding the tension churches, and they're the the churches that are saying this isn't right. We've got to get this out. We've got to. We have differences of opinion. This is a time for us to deal with this as Christians and as, as adults and, and so on. And, uh, and what I think is happening is those four streams are ongoing and they're creating an inevitable dynamic uh, in, in our churches. Um, because if the walking on eggshells people 
think that that's going to be a winning strategy. Well, it, it might be a winning strategy this week and next week, but the thing they have to realize is the young people will not sit around and wait forever. And so they yeah. will lose that creative group that really is their long-term future. Yeah. The thing I could, would, could say though, is that I think a few uh, growing numbers of the walking on eggshells churches are moving into holding the tension. Mm-hmm. And then I think as people work through that tension, more of them are moving into that creative zone. And, uh, and so that's the dynamic that I see going on right now. Um, and uh, to me, sometimes I feel like the only thing I can really do is try to name it for people because there is no way to deal with that without tension. Yeah. And, and part of what I think we have to do is it's like we, we, I wish we could get every pastor and every church board into a private room and give them a big hug and give them a pep talk and say, it's going to be tough out there. There's going to be conflict. Your job is not to keep everybody happy. Your job yeah. is, is to help move us uh, to where we need to be. So that, that's what I see going on. Absolutely. Um, just very quickly to wrap things up, I know that your newest project is, uh, is a book coming out next year called Faith After Doubt. Um, and w- very early on, when I got into the field of, of ministry with children and youth, I, I heard uh, John Westerhoff once say that the, the opposite of faith isn't doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. In a world in which I feel like people either grasp certainty or just wallow in doubt, where, where does faith come through that, that doubtful process? Yeah, well, of course, you and I are both huge fans of John Westerhoff, and, and there have been a number of theorists who've tried to help us see doubt as a stage of faith rather than the opposite of faith. That right. doubt is, especially when we think about children and youth, doubt is a necessary period where a young person has to say, this is what my parents believe, what am I going to believe? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it's that, that differentiation. It's, it's differentiation and then uh, the, the decision to actually own a personal faith. Mm-hmm. And, um, and one of the added difficulties to that right now is that so many of our churches that are nostalgic have been won over to, in the United States, Donald Trump, and it's somebody else in Brazil, and it's somebody else in Italy, and it's somebody else in Poland. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I, I know you have certain counterparts of this in Canada. Um, but all around the world, we have these nostalgic demagogic leaders who, and, and what's happening is huge numbers of churches, their silence becomes complicity uh, yeah. with that. And, and what that's revealing is the degree to which a lot of predominantly white churches deep down have never dealt with their white supremacy and racism. Mm-hmm. They've never dealt with their economic uh, elitism and their disdain for the poor and marginalized. They've never dealt with their carelessness about the environment, these, these critical issues. And, um, and here's the, the, the truth. If we want young people to be good people, they have to doubt the version of Christianity they were inher- they, they inherited. That version of Christianity deserves atheists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and the and, doubt suddenly becomes a gift to us all. Exactly. The world, in fact, it's a sentence that I labored over. I, I, as I wrote it, I thought, I want to say this, but I stopped and thought, 
this is the sentence some people are going to take out of context and all the rest. But I decided to keep it in the sentences, doubt will save the world. If the world yeah. is going to be saved, doubt that we desperately need doubt. That's not an act of infidelity. It's an act of, of I think, fidelity to God. It means doubting human theologies that have caused us and will continue to cause us a lot of trouble. So uh, that's what I, I, I do in the book. I, I uh, offer uh, people a way of seeing doubt as a necessary stage of faith. Mm -hmm. Kind of one of the big areas of uh, maybe discovery for me is I, I think I, the process of writing the book helped me see the sociological dimension of faith and doubt much more clearly. Mm -hmm. and, and that the kind of faith that I think it, we need is a kind of faith that is not hold by, that, that we don't hold because of a promise of reward or a threat of punishment. Mm -hmm. Any kind of faith that depends on those things it is really a, a form of mind control. Yeah. And, and then we have to start saying, well, that has been <laughs> the essence of an awful lot of faith for a long time. And it makes us start asking deeper questions. What do we mean about when we talk about faith then? And what would it mean for a community to form children in a kind of faith that welcomes doubt, that isn't, yeah. you know, the, and, and that, that puts them on a path and, and, and welcomes their questions. And of course, that's what you're committed to in, in the work of Faith Forward and uh, Absolutely. what I'm committed to as well. Thank you so much for your time. There's more we could say, and it just means we'll have to do a part two at some point. I look forward uh, to that. Thanks for tuning in to the Faith Forward podcast series. If you want to learn more from creative thinkers and innovative leaders, be sure to subscribe or visit faith-forward.net.